0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, is that is that Jeff? Yeah, I'm Jeff. And Jeff, is it It's Cripal. Cripel, okay Yeah. 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 Um, that that's good to know. I for some reason I always thought it was Kripal. Uh kripal. Okay, Cripel it is.
1: We we have family that say Cripple and we have family that say Kripal. And in southeastern Nebraska, it's Cripal. So you can't go wrong. It's and I'm just...
0: going to call you Jeff. Okay, Jeff. Jeff's way better. Okay. Uh, so um, I, I, it's really great to talk to you. Uh, I, have, uh, I have been aware of you for a really long time, and I only really became immersed in your way of looking at the world. Recently, when I read your, your brand-new book, and I'm holding it up here so the readers or so the audience uh, can see the flip. Right. So I want to talk about this. Um, it's just gem full of ideas about pretty much everything important. <laughs> what it means to be human, about the role of science and philosophy and religion in the world today, the, the quest for the meaning of life, and it's it's a wonderful book. It's very personal, personal and passionate, and just filled with. Lots of stories and lots of really provocative ideas. Um, but before we get into this, um, and by the way, there's a lot of overlap between our interests, which is yeah. one reason why um, I'm so glad to have discovered your work. And I, what I'm hoping we can do today is figure out where we overlap, and you know, we definitely overlap um, in significant ways, and where maybe there's some distance between us. Yeah, uh, at least yeah. A little distance between us. Yeah, D- distance is fine. Distance yeah. is good. <laughs> That's right. We're all different. <laughs> yeah, diversity is good. Um, but first, can you give can you give us a sense of how you became who you are? You, you strike me as being a really '60s kind of person, um, but you're not really a '60s person. Yeah. You're 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 about I think 10 years younger than I am. I was born in 1953. Yeah. I was born in 62, 62. Yeah. Okay. Um, so how did you become interested in, um, I don't know, philosophy and religion and the meaning of life and all that stuff.
1: It's a long story. (laughs) I'll tell you the short version. I've told it many, many times. So some of your viewers will be bored already, but that's okay. Um, So I grew up in this little farming community in Nebraska, southeastern Nebraska called Hebron. Uh, I grew up in a German-Czech Catholic family. About a third of the town was Catholic, about a third of it was Lutheran, and a third of it was everything else Protestant. Mm -hmm. Um, I became super, super pious and anorexic uh, when I hit puberty. And we didn't even have the word anorexia at the time. It didn't exist in the public culture until Karen Carpenter died in 84 or whenever she, whenever she passed. So this was in the 70s. Uh, I had been a really um, fairly good athlete, played all the sports, came from a very athletic family, and it's hard to be a good athlete when you don't eat. And uh, so it was, it was something of a crisis. Uh, if you would have asked that Jeff what he was doing, he would have said he was fasting. He was trying to be a saint, and uh, I, I was very serious about that huh. and um, that continued all through high school, and um, I ended up at a monastic seminary in in Missouri, really pursuing the monastic life and continuing to fast and The monks got very concerned about me physically, and they put me into psychoanalysis and it was uh, an eye opener. I mean, it just opened me up to, you know, really the unconscious dynamics behind a lot of religious behavior, including my own. And uh, it cured me of the anorexia. I, I basically didn't eat um, much for about seven years. And uh, through this psychoanalysis, it was just like you know somebody turning a dial. In my my body's metabolism, and I was just I was basically starving to death and once I figured out what was going on and it all had to do with sexuality and the repression of that and how that fit into celibacy and sanctity and the whole thing. there's a whole elaborate story there we could get into, but, but don't need to. Um, I just started to eat and uh, didn't stop and um, kind of became healthy and alive again. <laughs> Uh, and because of that, though that that experience, and also being in a seminary in which most of the guys were were gay in some sort of repressed or implicit way. This is in the early eight the early eighties, John. So this is like totally verboten, totally uh, off the charts in terms of what you could say. But I was so struck by the anorexia, by the by the psychoanalysis, and by the implicit homoeroticism of the community in a kind of sublimated way that I just got fascinated by religion. And I was like, how is this that Catholicism in this case says one thing on the outside, but on the inside, it's the exact opposite. It, it, it it looks nothing like it sounds on the outside. And I, I was just so kind of blown away by that. And, um, so the, the the psychoanalysis did not just cure me of my anorexia, it cured me of my holiness. And
0: I, I, oh, I would have been so thrilled to hear that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I just have to stop you for a second. Just a few days ago, I'm not sure when this this show is going to air, but it's May 6th today. Uh on on May third, I was at a conference at NYU on whether Freud is still relevant to neuroscience. And it was, you know, they had two Freud bashers there and two defenders of Freud. And, um, you know, I, of course, the bashers think that Freud is, is a fraud and totally useless. And, and, uh, you know, I think this is probably a majority view nowadays. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a little bit of synchronicity that here you are talking about psychoanalysis, curing you. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, what we know about psychotherapy is, you know, a lot of,
1: a lot of techniques could cure you, you know, or, or not, it it may not have to do much with the method, but certainly in this case, Freud had so much to say about sexuality and religion that it, it just threw open the doors for me, not, not just, not just, uh, psychotherapeutically, but, but intellectually, it was just, it was just a revelation, you know, and, uh, so i I pursued that. I went to graduate school and really studied male sexuality and mystical literature for about twenty years
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and wrote three books really on on that topic and then and basically got run out of India for it, among other things and India was my first intellectual love and what I was trained to do linguistically i had spent over a decade learning Indian languages and, and the culture. And when my first book was, you know, essentially became um, the focus of the band, band movements there, I had to I had to reinvent myself. And my, Michael Murphy happened to call me up in 1998, um, all enthused about the same book that was being banned. And Mike helped co-found the Esalen Institute out in Big Sur, California, which has had this long interest in science and, and mysticism and psychedelics and everything else. And so he invited me out there in 98, and I went. And this was this was at the very nadir of the assaults on my character and my, my scholarship. And uh, over the next couple of years, I realized that, A, I could never go back to India, and, B, I needed another intellectual path, and I thought, you know, studying this, you know, this countercultural community, essentially, out in California that had embraced all kinds of aspects of Hindu and Buddhist thinking, but not others, uh, would be a really uh, interesting thing to do, but also, frankly, a safe thing to do. they were not going to be upset with me if I started to talk about sexuality and religion. Quite the contrary. They were always telling me stories I couldn't put in print. And, uh,
0: so, yeah, I hear, I hear that the, the sex was not exactly uh, taboo and esalen. No, no. It, what, it,
1: that's putting it mildly. And so that's what I did. From about 2000 to 2007, I worked on – essentially mystical currents in the American counterculture. And I think that's what you're hearing in my voice. Or, or, because I know all of those figures, all those authors, all those characters. And, of course, I am in deep sympathy with, with a lot of it. Um, but when I was doing the Esalen Project, I, it was very basically an ethnographic project. And I kept running into people who were telling me stories that I just thought were crazy, and, and, and impossible and and yet I knew these people, and I knew they were being honest with me. they were telling it like it like it was, yeah, and I realized that you know I had studied mystical literature for twenty five years at that point, and I had no way of thinking about these experiences, yeah. you know, and I just found that fascinating again, and I wanted to ask the question, why had the professional study of religion just sort of refused to think about anomalous or uh, paranormal phenomena? And so I, I worked on that for about 10 years, wrote a book called Authors of the Impossible, which is really an intellectual history of the paranormal, and then a book called Mutants and Mystics, which is really about the paranormal experiences of artists and Uh, authors who create popular culture and and so that's kind of how i got into this zone and when you get into that zone what you realize very quickly is that the history of the paranormal is wrapped up with the history of science whether the scientists want to admit that or not it 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 is it's all one thing and there are all these boundaries and that and this table that people are trying to take things off of and put back on i just got fascinated by what particular scientific writers and what particular religious authors, what they were willing to put on the table and what they wanted to take off the table. And that's kind of what I do now is think about that problem of how we, how we, how in, how intellectual elites in particular essentially become border crossing agents, Mm -hmm. right? They, they allow certain things across the border and they don't allow other things. And, um, but all those things exist and keep appearing and people's lives. And so
0: that's, that's really what I'm most interested in. That, that, that's great. I love that idea of, um, being of intellectuals as, uh, as border guards. That, that's, uh, yeah. that's a very powerful metaphor. I just want to go back, speaking of people who sort of enforce certain intellectual rules, go back to Freud, where it was your early thinking about, religious and mystical experiences is it Freudian in the sense that you were trying to interpret it within a, a non-supernatural reductionist framework i mean you know religious experiences as sublimated sexual desire i mean i'm thinking of somebody like uh sister Teresa. she's she you know she's Uh, kind of the archetype of that. You read her mystical writings and it sounds like she's having sex with Jesus or something. Yeah, she Um, is. Did you, did you see it? Is that how you saw mysticism? I mean, I know you you don't see it that way anymore, but did you for a while? So not really.
1: I mean, the Freud that I absorbed was through a, a a Benedictine monk who was a, was a psychoanalyst. And the Freudian thinking was used in a way that did not necessarily debunk um, the religious experience and all of my early work actually was was on uh, Indian tantra and the the problem or the question was, are these sexual religious experiences like Teresa of Avila's um, bridal uh, mysticism? are these simply sexual experiences being sublimated into some kind of other emotional plane? Or is there something cosmic or religious about human sexuality itself and that celibacy and shame and marginalized sexual orientations are much more likely to realize that because those people are not going to be able to express their sexuality in healthy social ways. So they're going to, uh, sublimate and realize their sexualities in alternative and often metaphysical or religious ways. So no, I wasn't actually reductive is, is essentially what you're asking. Yeah. I, I, I thought Freud was just spot on about all kinds of things, but I never felt like I had to follow him metaphysically. Mm. Um, and, um, I still don't actually. I, I still think you can use, you can use anybody you want without signing your name to everything they thought and wrote. I mean, that's kind of silly. Um, so I, I just found Freud so helpful with things like, you know, why, why in all the major monotheisms is the model of faith a father's willingness to kill his own son? You know, that, that's a Freudian question. Yeah. But it's also, Central to the monotheisms, you can't get around that. And why um, why are there no women in the priesthood? That that again is not just a historical question. I think it's a a profound Freudian question, and it has to do with male sexual orientation and all sorts of things. So Freud just helped me think think with him, and helped me answer the questions that I wanted to ask, but I never felt bound to his particular borders. And, of course, he had serious borders.
0: Yeah, the oceanic ish experience, as as I recall, as um, just this uh, desire to crawl back into the womb and to feel the oneness of of being within your mother or something like that. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Freud that people don't
1: understand, though, is so I have a colleague here at Weiss named Bill Parsons, and he wrote his first book on Freud and the Oceanic Feeling. Hmm. And it turns out if you dig into that story, the story is really this heartwarming story about Freud's relationship to Romain Roland, who was this great French uh, writer and wild, wild spiritual seeker slash mystic who had left Catholicism but had was completely convinced that the mystical experience was somehow at the root of all of this. And Freud loved Roland. He just adored him and he, he honored and respected Roland's mysticism, but he he just said, I don't have the ears to hear it. I I'm just deaf to that music. And so, I mean, I, I, I honor that. I think that's a really honest kind of response. And I think Freud's reductive instincts were honest, too. I think that's just what he thought.
0: And I can you're, see that. You're making Freud sound more humble than um, he is generally considered to be. Yeah, I know. I like Freud. What can I say? <laughs> I like Freud, too. And, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, so do some people um, across the river over at uh, New York University. Well, um, should. I, I do want to just ask, uh, even though your your goal was not to have a reductive take on religion and uh, and mysticism, were you, you now you, you've alluded to this um, kind of blowback uh, against one of your books, a book about Hinduism, I think. Yeah. And uh, wasn't that because that book was seen as being overly reductive or you were, you know. Attributed yeah. in some kind of sexual uh dimension uh to Hinduism that, that bothered some Hindus. Is that the well, point? well, first of all, they never read the book. Okay.
1: Um if they would have read the book, it's it's actually not a reductive book. But what bothered them so much about it was my thesis that their saint, named Ramakrishna, was essentially homoerotically inclined and that he would go into ecstasy, you know in context where he was looking or interacting with a young male disciple. Ah. So it was, it was very much a kind of platonic eros, not in the sense of which that expression is abused and misused in, in public speech, but eros says it was really intended in Plato's dialogues. In other words, a, a homosexual love of a young male that sends one into an ecstatic state or a religious experience. And, that's precisely what you see in in that particular saint, and so that was a that was a big big problem and the fact that I was a westerner and white um, made it also essentially a kind of colonial thing for them they 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 experienced it as another white westerner telling them about their own religion um, which i which I am white and I am Western and I was telling them something about their own religion. So that was all true, but there certainly weren't any colonial or imperial intentions in the work. Um, But it just, it just got kind of, you know, the the India in the mid 1990s was very much like America post Trump. Yeah. The, the, the nationalists and the fundamentalists had just come into power and, Uh, in any intellectual that was perceived to be, you know, against that or was passing us advancing a story that undermined that was, was potentially targeted. Yeah. And, and it turned out I was just, I was the first American scholar of religion to be targeted in that way by these nationalists who had just come into power, but there were dozens of them afterwards. There's a whole, there's a whole line of, uh, targeting and censoring and uh, maligning um, not just Western scholars, but Indian scholars of Hinduism as well. Anybody who doesn't, you know, uh, carry the party line. Um, so it's, you know, what's new? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of the story of, of intellectuals throughout most of history.
0: Um, so I want to – you were uh, talking about – um, the paranormal before. I think that was the the term you used. Uh, so let's go back to that. And, of course, that's going to be leading up to uh, to uh, the trip. I mean, uh, the flip. <laughs> that's, that's the trip, too. Yeah, I know. I, I keep thinking of it as the trip because it's a very trippy book. Uh, <laughs> but can you explain what you mean by the paranormal? Give us some examples. Sure. That's- sure. So I'm using – so.
1: You know, one of the jokes in the study of religion is that all the words we used are are abused words. So myth, ritual, you know, um, mysticism, they all have really bad histories, and they were essentially used to beat people up at some point in the past. And the paranormal has uh, kind of been abused a lot in the last 40 or 50 years. But when it was coined in 1903 by a French um lawyer and and physician, it it meant something really precise. Uh, Paranormal simply meant some kind of experience in the physical environment that corresponded perfectly to some subjective state, but that we didn't have a scientific model to explain yet. It did not mean the supernatural. It meant what I call the supernatural, two words. It meant the natural world behaving in a way that was extraordinary for sure, but was not was not supernatural. so the example I always give here is the is poltergeist phenomena, and this is actually what he was studying when he coined the word paranormal he, he They were looking at poltergeist phenomena and what they were beginning to realize was that these were not angry ghosts or spirits in the room that they generally happened around really, really troubled teenagers or really distressed family networks that there was something really serious going on here something of a of an emotional or sexual traumatic nature and that in ways we don't understand that these these conflicts were manifesting as objects moving around or falling off the wall or or kept catching into flames or something so that's that's what they meant by the paranormal. They meant something that looks supernatural but actually is natural, but really is super because we have no we have no model for that. That doesn't make any sense either, given given our our models. And so what, when I talk about the paranormal, what I mean is something in the physical environment that is happening that anybody can see, but it corresponds in some eerie or impossible way with something going on in in the mind of of a particular subject or or, or person. Right. Um, And you have to have both of those. You have to have the physical and the mental thing happening at the same time for me to call it paranormal. You can't remove one of them. In other words, if I have a near-death experience and I come back and tell you about it, John, that's not paranormal. Because there's nothing physical. I mean, nobody can... There's nothing physical about it. But if I come back and you're my doctor and I have a near-death experience and I tell you all about a conversation you had in the hallway, uh, 200 feet down the hallway from where I was knocked out cold, that's paranormal. I because you have an event in the physical environment that can be confirmed by a third party and it does correspond to some extraordinary mental or, or, or spiritual state that a person is in at the time uh, levitation. Well, so yeah, I mean, uh, I just, I just, I've been lecturing on levitation. I love levitation. Um, I love levitation because if it's true, anybody can see it, right? You can't, you can't argue it. If you look at people, if you look at cases of claimed levitation, St. Teresa of Avila by, by the way, is one of them. Huh? Uh, Joseph of Cupertino is usually the most famous and the most uh, cited. These these instances usually happen in extreme emotional or or spiritual states. People don't levitate for the hell of it. They they tend to levitate in moments of extreme devotion, and it tends to happen to these individuals outside of their own control. They're they're not in control of it. They often find it terrifying or or embarrassing, Um, but it seems to be triggered by some kind of emotional or devotional state. Uh, Again, those are just patterns. I and levitation is the is as far as you can get right on that spectrum of impossibility. I I don't normally go there this early in a
0: conversation because you know I lose everyone. Uh, It's It's because I I just read. Um, the guy who wrote that book about the flying monk sent it to me fairly recently. Michael Grosso. Yes. And uh, I found it, I found it fascinating actually just because here was this case that this was what, what century was it? Uh, he, so Joseph um,
1: 1601 or something to like 1663 or something, something like that.
0: And he was observed flying around yeah. a lot of people
1: thousands right. thousands and yeah. nobody ever questioned the the levitation or the flight what they questioned was what was going on you know because right. a lot of them thought it was the devil yeah and, and 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 so that was the debate yeah is is
0: i i'm just curious because i you know, you've just said you, you sort of sometimes wait until later in the conversation to get into levitation. I, actually, I don't, usually I never get into levitation. Well, okay. I, I, so I want, I guess because it's one of the more extreme yeah. uh, examples of the paranormal that really uh, sort of tests people's open mindedness. And I must say, it tests my open mindedness. I, I wonder if we could just have a conversation about, I don't know, and. Um, and, and this is something, you know, this is, this is a major theme in your book about what we should make of these experiences. Let me just ask you this. Have you ever had yourself, um, a clear cut paranormal experience? Have you witnessed it? Have you been part of it yourself? Where does your, where does your own open-mindedness toward this come from? How much is it intellectual versus being very personal? So a lot of it's intellectual, frankly, John. I'll answer the question your I won't avoid
1: your question, but let me say first that the reason I love this stuff is to me, there it's like a depth charge, you know, in World War II. You would you'd drop a depth charge into the ocean and it would blow up and you would kind of know where the submarines are. And you know, and so to me these these crazy, crazy phenomena help us to understand our own unconscious assumptions and occasionally they'll blow up an assumption like, like a submarine. Sometimes they won't, but at least then we know where we stand. We know where our borders are. We know what's on the table and what's off the table. Talking about ordinary normal stuff. We don't, we don't really learn much about our own limits or our own assumptions We only learn about those by talking about things we we actually don't believe or we can't accept. So that's why I love this. It's it's an intellectual play for me in some ways. On the other hand, I've had a few of these, but I've received hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories from readers that I just find so moving and so powerful and so at the end of the day unanswerable you know i just to me it builds up there's a kind of building up of a of of a data set n- no piece of which is 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 irreplaceable but when you add it all up i the sense i get is that we're just we're just we're living in a world in which human beings are just so much stranger than than we think we are, and I just find that a, a better world to live in. Yeah, uh, I, I, I just do, and so for me, it's an aesthetic as well. Um, but I'm not, I'm not particularly attached to any of those, you know, things. Like if we somehow pr- could prove that Joseph didn't levitate, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, I'd, not bother, m- wouldn't ruin my world. Right. Um, um but I kind of like the. F- Possibility that he did because it's
0: so upsetting to our assumptions. Yeah. Um, I, I, I go ahead. Well, I, I as you know, um, I, uh, in, in this recent book of mine, uh, mind, body problems. Um, I, uh, I interviewed uh, a, a bunch of major thinkers in the realm of the mind, body problem uh, who come at it from all these different points of view and uh and some of them have what I would call supernatural views. There's a Christian, there's a Buddhist, and probably the one who who most tested my own skepticism, my own kind of narrow, although with some caveats, uh worldview is Stuart Kaufman, um, who's uh he's kind of a polymath. He's somebody who just thinks about about the mysteries of of uh existence where we came from and what what possibly what forces generated us and he told me a quite extraordinary story which i recount in my book um in which uh he his daughter was killed at a very young age uh she's only 13 years old and kaufman had a vision of it before it happened yeah and he feels that it was either precognition Or he thinks it's this is even more likely he was reading the thoughts of his daughter, and he only started talking about it. You know, this is back in the eighties. He only started talking about it after his uh, wife, uh, the mother uh, of this girl, uh, died, and um, and he 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 had been spending all this time trying to come up with a worldview, a kind of physics that would allow for and help and explain. this paranormal phenomena. He also had gotten into spoon bending and he said he had yeah. bent a spoon. And we actually appeared on, um, we did this show here uh, on meaning of life TV and Stu held up the spoon that he said he had bent. And I, I'm not sure how to still, what I think about this stuff, I guess I sort of feel, I agree with you that we are, we're so strange, and life is just so weird, and there's so many inexplicable things uh we're so far from understanding ourselves, and life is also so hard there's it, yeah. you know it's hard it we suffer uh confident yeah. overcome that you know the probably the worst thing that can happen to someone is the death of a child, yeah, and so I sort of feel like, yeah, okay, um I honor that, I respect that, I'm not sure if I I can say, I believe it happened. uh, But, um, but I'm, I'm trying to be more open-minded to experiences that I would call supernatural or paranormal or, or whatever you like. Is that in any way like your view, or are you a little bit closer to the belief in these things? Well, I, so, you know, I'm, I'm, so I'm not a scientist, John.
1: So I don't, I'm not even interested in proving things with the scientific method. My 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 job as a historian of religions is to listen or read people's religious experiences and take them all equally seriously. Yeah. So if Stuart Kaufman tells me that story, I have no philosophical or scientific reason to tell him that it didn't happen. Right. You know, that to me is is it's cruel, for one thing, yeah. and philosophically suspect on another. I, I, don't, I, I don't see how we can take some people's experiences off the table and put other people's experiences on. Yeah. And, of course, this is why a lot of conventional scientists don't even like the category of experience. These are just anecdotes, right? And, and to me, that's, that's kind of a cop-out. Um, because often if you look at these experiences in someone like Stuart's life, this is one of the most important things that ever happened to him in his whole life. And you're going to call it an anecdote? Right. To me, that is philosophically wrong and morally wrong. Yeah. And I also am of the strong opinion that the most robust paranormal phenomena happen around trauma. Mm. They do not happen in happy, content lives, you know. Um, they happen around death. They happen around suicide. They happen around uh, illness and danger and war and all of these really difficult things you're speaking about. And they often happen between loved ones, people who are deeply, deeply entangled emotionally, genetically, familially. And so I think these lie at the kind of core, you know, of who we are and and our relationships with one another, our communities, our families, and so for me, this is a deeply it's a deeply ethical thing as well. It's like no, th- this is important. Yeah.
0: Um, that that's, So anyway, that's where I would go with that. That's that's beautifully said. I might I might sort of borrow some of that rhetoric the next time I'm I'm trying to tell some of my atheist, uh, materialist, reductionist friends to be a little more tolerant toward uh, some of these other worldviews. All right. We should, we should, uh, we should talk about uh, the flip. Um, Before we do, I want to show you my wind chime. Okay.
1: See, it's bent
0: spoons. Oh, shit. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Perfect. I think it's a new high point on meaning of life. TV. (laughs) Um, yeah, so explain what you mean by the flip first. Okay. Of.
1: Yeah, so let's go to your materialist, uh, atheist, um, friends, who are also my friends, by the way, John. I, I, I love these people. I, I have, this is not a, this is not an anti-science or anti-atheist book. Yeah, we've got to be tolerant and open-minded toward them, too. Well, because they actually have really good points. Yeah. I, I actually understand why they are atheists and materialists. I, I, I'm sure I'm perceived to be an atheist by most religious believers hmm. because I happen to find their images of God, horrific and appalling. <laughs> and, and I say that all the time. So um, I, I'm, I'm an atheist vis-a-vis their images of God. And I'm also a materialist in the sense of, I don't want to live in a world without a- antibiotics and, you know, anesthesia and, all of these things that we, we we I, I, that's not what the flip is about. Right. What the flip is about is scientists and engineers and medical professionals who are rigorously trained in these modes of thought, and they confuse the success of technology or medicine or science with its materialist interpretations. And then something happens to them in life. They have a near-death experience. They take a psychedelic. um, A a loved one uh, knows instantly that they're in trouble. Um, You know, something like what Stuart Kaufman described to you. Something like that happens to them, and they flip. And by flipping, I don't mean they abandon their science or their materialism. I mean they understand now that, mind is as fundamental to reality as matter is. And the flip also is a metaphor that goes both ways. Again, it's not that they abandon materialism, it's that they see it as just one side of the coin now. And there's another side, the mental or, or, or consciousness, that is also fundamental. And this completely changes them as people, but it doesn't change an iota their science or their technology or their medicine. It works just fine with with this new metaphysical orientation. And so what I mean by the flip is not, nah, 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 you guys are wrong and, and I'm right. It's not it at all. It's, no, there's real relevance to this view and the opposite side of the coin is relevant too. And we need to push towards some kind of future worldview or knowledge that can incorporate both sides of the coin.
0: Um and this this often comes about not as a kind of intellect incremental intellectual yeah. realization from using reason and lots of reading and maybe arguing with other intellectuals it can come in a flash in a uh, yeah yeah um and that that's its weakness by the way john yeah you know
1: because you can't, you can't, I can't explain, you can't reason someone to this. Like, you know, this isn't a logical syllogism or a mathematical formula. You can't, it just doesn't work like that, you know? Um, and this is why, you know, the book is also a plea for the humanities. You know, it's a, it's, you know, I, when I think of the humanities, you know, I often say, well, the humanities are, um, it's about knowing. It's about a form of knowing us that changes us. It, there's something deeply existential and transformative about it that, and you can be changed, of course, in the sciences or the social sciences, but there's something about the humanities that that have this potential to really radically change who you are and how you think about the world. And I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with, with this book is some form of knowledge that isn't just abstract and and objective and third person, but that is also deeply first person and, and, and life changing.
0: And you, you describe it, you have this term, a third way. When you describe it, you're looking at something that avoids the extremes of religious fundamentalism and what you might call, I don't know, scientific fundamentalism, which is this ultra materialistic point of view that we're, just talking about, um, and it the way I relate to that, and tell me if this is uh, if this is how you think about it. Is um, you know what's characteristic of those two extremes of religious or scientific fundamentalism is that they are both fairly dogmatic. There's a lot of certainty involved. People in those positions, they they're pretty sure how the world works. And um, I, think, I think you could just remove the word "pretty" there. Yeah, and there's this, and the way I'm looking at things increasingly, um, or maybe, I don't know, maybe I've always looked at things this way and I'm I'm just accepting it more now, is that um, we don't really know what's going on. The more we know, the more we realize how little we know, especially about ourselves. It's quite extraordinary that in some ways we know more about the structure of the universe than we know what's going on, on inside our own skulls our identities are in constant flux where we're constantly trying to find ways to identify ourselves as, as matter or mind or genes or software programs. And all these descriptions are inadequate actually. So you seem to be, my feeling is that there should be a lot more doubt in our conversations about who we are and what the purpose of life is, is that, close to what you're talking about with the third way. Well, yeah, but it's,
1: yeah, it's, it's, it's yes and no. I mean, it is that, of course it calls for more humility and more doubt uh, and more play. But what I really mean by the third way is, you know, the, the site, so the scientific, I think where the scientific method goes wrong is when scientists assume that, that it's the only way to know about the world or ourselves. It's perfectly fine as it is. It's a fantastic method. It produces all kinds of wonderful things. But to the extent we begin to assume that if you can't know something through the scientific method, it isn't real or it isn't true, I think we're in deep trouble. Yeah. And with religious ways of knowing, the problem where religious faith becomes, I think, pathological is when it becomes exclusive of all other forms of knowledge or all other worldviews as well. So the dangers of both of them is their, their exclusive claims to absolute truth. And um, the third way that I'm talking about is really a, it's a kind of attempt to split through them into something else that incorporates both of them but is neither one nor the other. And, again, I don't know what that is, John. See that? But I don't think we have to know what it is. We just have to sense that what we're doing now isn't working. And so there's this section in the book called How, How Not to Make Religious Fundamentalism Stronger. And, essentially, what I say there is, look, fundamentalism is a modern phenomenon for the most part. We know when it arose in the early part of the 20th century. It arose against really two disciplines. One was biblical criticism or the study of religion. The other was evolutionary biology. So the scientists and the humanists were in the foxhole together from day one. And if you want to make fundamentalism stronger, then keep pushing this meaningless, materialistic, nihilistic worldview. People will not, they will not take that. And they will fall back into these black and white, you know, uh, certainties. If you if you want if you want to weaken it, start talking about science and the world in a way that is potentially meaningful, and and that can give people um, more meaning and value and and a vision of what the human being is that isn't just a moist robot or a you know. A, you know, whatever, whatever image they, they have of us, you know, selfish, selfish genes or whatever, whatever the ice cream of the day is, you know? Uh, so I, I, I think, I think there are real reasons that we're in the trouble we're in culturally. And I think it has something to do with intellectuals who have built these worldviews that are just frankly depressing.
0: Um, Let me, let me give you, let me tell you, one of my concerns, um uh, in, in this view, and this isn't a concern with your view, it's a concern with my own ideas about, about where science should go in the future and, and some, and about some trends that are happening right now. You, you were saying that you think, uh, you know, there, that mind might be as fundamental as matter and that, and, this could be part of this new worldview that you're talking about. Yeah. And lots of different examples of this out there right now. Uh, some of them coming from physics that, uh, you know, that sort of the foundation of the sciences. Uh, you've got the anthropic principle, which says, you know, it, um, the universe has to be constructed so that we appear because, um, the universe has to allow for our existence because otherwise we wouldn't be here to observe it. It's just, to me, it's a ridiculous tautology, but some people take it very, very seriously. There are various ideas coming out of quantum mechanics that suggest that consciousness or the observer play some kind of fundamental uh, role in the construction of reality. And this isn't just people on the fringe. This is John Wheeler was uh, this great physicist. who was one of the, uh, uh, originators of that idea. Uh, one of the hottest theories in neuroscience now, integrated information theory, uh, one of the proponents is Christoph Koch, one of the world's leading neuroscientists. He's another character in this book that I just wrote. The implication of that is that consciousness pervades the entire universe. Wow. Um, the trouble I have with these is that it seems to me one of the great hard-won victories over human narcissism uh, for us to realize that we are not the center of the universe, um, that you know we 're on this little speck of dust in one remote corner of of the universe in this kind of ordinary uh, solar system around this humdrum star, and evolutionary biology also sort of put us in our place, and i 'm worried that we 're succumbing to that old self centeredness yeah. uh, and tendency to project ourselves on the universe and to say that this is all about us when we make mind so important to reality. So I just wondered if, I guess I'm just asking for your reaction to that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I I share that concern, John, and I think that's totally spot on. I think though, that if you look in the humanities and, and and frankly, the sciences too, the whole ecological or kind of post-human push you know, I I wouldn't conflate mind with human mind, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I you know, I have, I have a dog here, Del- Delilah. She's somewhere here. I I I'm not at all convinced that she's anything more than a furry human. You know, and and by that I don't mean that she's human. I mean that I'm also dog, and <laughs> that we share we share we share something fundamentally the same consciousness or sentience it's not restricted to the human being and i i do think there's a lot of impulses in our modern world that are pushing us into ecological forms of thought that really break down that kind of anthropocentrism that you're really worried about yeah on the other hand let me let me just let me say one thing to counter it maybe we are the center of the universe you know <laughs> I mean, people do have mystical experiences of being God. Yeah. You know, I mean, all of Christianity is based on such an experience or such a claim. Um, and, but, but, but you can think about that not as if John or Jeff or, or in this case, Jesus is God, but that somehow this cosmic mind can manifest through an individual human being in a way that maybe it can't manifest through Delilah, You know, I, I think that's actually possible and I want to leave that door open. And to me, that's a really, that's a very attractive kind of possibility that I think could play in the broader culture in a way that the depressing, um, the depressing ones don't or won't.
0: Well, yeah. So I am an old acid head and um and that is, you know, I've just given you my reasons for, for yeah. being a little suspicious of these, I don't know, mind-centric ideas yeah. about how the world works. On the other hand, I've had these experiences where everything really is mine, and yeah. where I felt like I was, you know, I was the mind that was creating the universe. And uh, so I, I'm kind of suspended between these, with between these two poles, I guess that was, this is a specific experience that I had back in the early eighties that I've written about in, in, uh, in a couple of my, uh,
1: no, I've read them. I've read the accounts. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I'm still, after all these years, I'm still trying to reconcile these two points of, of uh, view, one in which everything really is all mind. And in fact, it's just one mind with, with that's a real head case with some real, with some real issues to work out and then this other kind of scientific american brutal materialism and i'm i'm just like i don't know shuttling back and forth and maybe i've just decided to surrender to myself and just say it's all good somehow these two views are they're not incompatible i don't have to settle for one or the other right um, and in, in a way they're both complementary because the world is so strange that we need more than one point of view. But but see that's the flip, John. You
1: just are you just you could be on the back cover of the book. That's like that's <laughs> like perfect. That's a
0: perfect expression of what I was trying to get at. Yeah, you you defend pluralism and diversity in your book. Yeah. And that's also what you're encouraging, right? yeah well, it depends on what
1: you mean by that i mean i mean your your articulation of of a one mind is is isn't what that's not what pluralism is poised against pluralism just in the sense that humility and this awareness that everything we know and think and imagine is really a product of where we were born and who our families are and what language we're speaking and it's all local it's it's not absolute you know and This is why, I, you know, when I walk into a classroom, I teach comparative religion. And it isn't to make anyone more religious. It's, frankly, to loosen them up, you know, to say, look, there are really sophisticated, nuanced ways of being religious in completely opposite ways all around the world. People are different, and you can't subsume all of reality in just this local set of uh, stories you were told, you know, because you happen to be born into this family instead of the one in Sri Lanka or Eastern China or, or, or
0: indigenous Brazil, you know? Uh, one of the things that I've told my students to try to encourage this, this kind of open mindedness that we're talking about is to see their, their worldview. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not a total postmodernist. I think that science actually figures out, some things it really it it I discovers agree. true things about the world i think I atoms are real elements are real genes are real i mean you know there are all sorts of problems with language but we're discovering galaxies and other planets and and all that but but when we turn when we look at ourselves when we turn the science uh toward toward uh when we look in the mirror um then our ideas get get uh really fuzzy, and they don't get a purchase in the way that they do on some of these external parts of the world. Um, and it seems to me that what I've encouraged students to do is to think about uh, their religious views or philosophical views, scientific views, as a matter of taste rather than truth, as a kind of aesthetic choice. Um, some people just glom on to hardcore scientific materialism because it makes sense and in some odd way it might even be consoling to them. The thought that there is no life after death and no God and you know it's it's just a bunch of atoms colliding at random. That that's fine. It makes them feel good. Whereas for other people, that's a horrifying way. <laughs> of looking at the world. But it's sort of like the choice between um, you know, do you like one of Shakespeare's comedies? You think one of the that's the greatest work of literature, or do you prefer one of the horrible tragedies? Or, you know, do you like uh the Beatles versus Bob Dylan? I don't know. It's so feel world- passionately about these things, but but it's to say that there is a correct um you know that Bob Dylan is is definitely uh better a truer than i don't know than emily dickinson or something it's just a category error yeah i agree maybe when it comes to these ultimate worldviews we should see them in the same way as we see art novels poems. and you know it's not just
1: that the way the way i put it in my own classes is you have to decide what what novel or piece of science fiction you want to live inside and And sometimes the story you're living inside is going to hurt you and and you've got to be ready to decide whether you're going to stick with that story that's hurting you or that you're going to jump out of that story and jump into another story. but you're always going to jump into another story you know the, we we don't have the option of not living in a story, even if it's the story of not having a story that's still a story right and, and um, but i I guess I'm really you know since my time in the seminary with with the issue of sexual orientation and the young people i work with almost every day at the university i'm very aware that particular religious worldviews hurt people yeah and I, so i i'm not i'm not a relativist or or a postmodern to use your language i not even on a religious or a cultural level i i i think cultures and religions are are really um destructive on a lot of levels. And so I want to be able to criticize and reject religions and cultures, you know, as well. I'm, I'm, I'm not a cheerleader for religion or culture. I quite the contrary. I think much of culture and religion is stupid and, and, and uh, dangerous and and damaging. Hmm. And, and, and so how do we, as, how do we, as thinking people you know, essentially dwell there, you know, how do we, how do we live between stories and, and try to create something where our, at least our children and our grandchildren can not be harmed as much as we were, or our ancestors were.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's something that I'm struggling with now is, is how to be open-minded and critical at the same time. It, it's, it's uh for me, it's been a tricky balance because yeah. I've, it's something I haven't really been practicing for that long. I've been, for the most part, just a straightforward critic of various worldviews that, that I think are, are wrong-headed. And now I'm trying to say, oh, let's just all be tolerant of each other and life is hard and go ahead and be a Buddhist or a Christian or, or uh, you know, an evolutionary psychologist. Um, but I, but
1: so, I, yeah, I also think we have to be deeply um, aware that, not everybody has the luxury of sitting around thinking about these things you know they they have to live life and they have to go to work and they have to raise families and they just need a world essentially given to them and but i do think that there's a role for strange people like us to to step back and say no wait a minute you know wh- what is this doing to that kind of person and why do these worldviews conflict and why is there so much violence and you know those are all legitimate too. And that's kind of what you're, what you're articulating.
0: Uh, That's, that's a good segue to uh, my last question for you, which is, um, this again is something that I've been struggling with lately. Uh, Are you, how are you feeling about the future um, of humanity? Uh, Are you, are you optimistic? Do you think we're going to, we're going to, Figure things out and overcome our problems. We're gonna, we're going to endure. I. So this is, you know, John. We talked about this in our exchange for
1: Bellevue Literary Press. I, and I shared when I was a kid in the seventies. I was certain I wasn't going to live to see forty. I mean, this was the the very nadir of the nuclear arms race between the U.S. and the USSR. So I'm, I'm certainly more optimistic than I was then. This is where I think it's really a moral or an aesthetic choice. I think you have to choose to be optimistic or not. I I think there are really good reasons to be extremely pessimistic. And I think there are also good reasons to be optimistic. And the irony is I think the future largely hinges on whether we're optimistic or pessimistic. Yeah. I mean that's that's the kind of paradox here is we really do create the future by our choices, and so I just choose to be optimistic, but it's not because I know the future is bright. It's because I really believe that if a, enough of us make that choice, the future will be brighter. You know,
0: I, I like that. Uh, we should uh, we should end on that because I. That that's a that's a nice up note. I, I and I totally agree. I, I think that uh that um despair is these days I know a lot of people who are in despair and I don't really believe in sin, but I think of despair as kind of a sin. A giving up. Yeah. Yeah. Um anyway, Jeff, it's been really wonderful talking to you. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life T V. Meaning of Life will always be free for you
1: to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.